Welcome. You are listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's better to hear it live, this is the place to catch the latest sermon, conversation, and select program. If you like what you're hearing or want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get a notification for our next episode. Enjoy and see you in shul. Hello and welcome to Park Avenue Synagogue Podcasts, where we bring conversations of relevance and urgency to the Park Avenue community, to the North American community, sometimes with friends of Park Avenue Synagogue, but in this case, a member of the synagogue community, um, Professor Julian Zelizer, to talk about his book, Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past, edited by Kevin Cruz and our very own Julian E. Zelizer. Um, Julian is a New York Times bestselling author. He's been among the pioneers in the revival of American political history. He is the Malcolm Stevenson Forbes Class of 1941 Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton University and a CNN political analyst and a regular guest on NPR's Here and Now. Julian is an award-winning author and editor of 25 books, including The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress and the Battle for the Great Society, the winner of the D.B. Hardiman Prize for the Best Book on Congress, and Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974, co-authored and Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and The Rise of the New Republican Party. The New York Times named the book as an editor's choice and one of the 100 notable books in 2020. His most recent books, I actually just spoke on Julian's recent book, Abraham Joshua Heschel, A Life of Radical Amazement, and the presidency of Donald J. Trump, a first historical assessment, which he edited, and now the conversation today on his newest and latest Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Lies and Legends About Our Past. Welcome, Professor Zalazar. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Well, it is great to have you here, and you have um, written on a range of, of topics, maybe um, you could just share with us um, the origins of this book, um, Myth America. And it's, I have to tell you, it's, fab, it's fabulous because it's fabulous and intriguing. It's also fabulous as a reader because you don't have to read it all in one sitting. You can dip into one chapter, put it at the side of your bed. The next chapter, put it at the side of your bed and learn about um, the myths America tells. What's the origin story of this book? I think there's three things. Uh, one was watching um, just the media, a lot of, uh, you know, conservative media, radio, social media, uh, where a lot of what was being said about American history was just totally disconnected from what historians have been writing and teaching really for decades at this point. Uh, and there were just many myths out there uh, about key issues in American history or misconceptions that were being promoted as if they were widely accepted. So I wanted to bring together some really talented historians from around the country 
to offer a, a more sound assessment uh, of these kinds of topics. Two, history is under attack right now. I mean, um, you see it in states like Florida, where there's efforts to literally legislate uh, what can be taught in the classroom, not just higher education, but uh, you know, uh, elementary school, high school. Uh, so it was an important moment to try to get on the record why that's a bad idea and why that's dangerous to actually understanding the complicated uh, evolution of, of this country. And finally, something I've done my whole career, I, I believe in uh, what uh, university historians are doing. There's a lot of really smart people out there who have things to say in accessible, easy to read ways. Uh, so we wanted to bring some of the best and brightest from the profession on a range of issues, not all issues, to write uh, kind of short, accessible pieces that are grounded in scholarship, in research, all their areas of expertise uh, into a book that it's not always fun to read. It can be disturbing and unsettling, uh, but certainly engaging and interesting. And uh, those all three came together and, and the book moved along accordingly. Right. And really, each chapter, um, whether it's on American exceptionalism, immigration, uh, the United States as an empire, whatever the topic is, it, there, there's sort of a, a cadence to each chapter where it, it describes a myth we tell ourselves. And then the scholar in question will um, debunk or challenge or, or push back at that myth or how that myth came to be. And, and I want to dive into a few of them um, momentarily. But let me just ask you, in, in um, the spirit of, you know, speaking to a, an esteemed historian, right, isn't the act of telling history always ideologically driven, meaning the, 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 just the project and, you know, and, and there's revisionist history and the history we tell in one generation is going to be different than in another generation. Isn't that part of the project of historians, and, and I guess at the other end of that spectrum, if that might be the case, which I have no idea if you agree or disagree with that premise, then at what point um, does truth cease to exist, right? Because if every historian is retelling the past to suit his or her needs, then at a certain point has the question of, well, what actually happened just become sort of a, a project of relative truth. Yeah, I mean, and there's some who go to that, uh, they go to that end and almost argue that uh, every person has their own history and can uh, tell that history the way they want. But I think it's not actually the case um, that that's how history is written. Uh, everyone has ideological positions. Everyone is writing in the context of the time. So a medievalist writing in 2023 will be affected by things in their life that they see and read and beliefs that they have. But A, good history is still grounded in archival research. So you can't just say anything. Uh, you first have to marshal evidence. And there's different kinds of evidence. It could be the statements of presidents. It could be oral histories of average Americans. But you have to find that evidence to build the case. Uh, so that's step one. And a lot of what goes on now, it's disconnected from that basic process. And, and two, I mean, what historians such as myself do, uh, it's not to argue there's only one way to see the past. Um, but af as you kind of build a case through the archives, you also read a lot of what other historians have written. You really engage in the literature. You understand the weaknesses of what's been written in the past 
And that's when you try to advance an, an argument um, and enter into a conversation. It's it's not unlike a rabbi. Um, you are kind of reading texts, but you use the text to build your argument. You read what other rabbis have written and what the literature says, and then you put forward your position. The kind of bad way to do that is to make stuff up, uh, to say there's a text that doesn't exist. So, so revision is actually a good thing, and that's a process we engage in. Our essays are not, again, the final truth. They're just really solid, smart, grounded arguments um, that can then be the basis for a smart conversation. So how did this happen, this, this slide into a post-truth world? Is it social media? Is it, is it new in the uh, Trump presidency? Is it, um, you know, the, this narrow casting of, you know, how we access information and there's a truth of MSNBC and a truth of Fox News and a, a truth like, where, where tr truth itself has become such a slippery proposition. A, how did it happen? Or, or B, I suppose I could ask you, is that necessarily new? Well, on B, there's always been uh, this kind of problem. So you can look in a period in the U.S., um, such as the Cold War in the 1950s and 60s. During that period, there were efforts to purge certain kinds of arguments and histories uh, from textbooks, get rid of professors uh, who were seen as as promoting uh, a more liberal view of history. Uh, in in Freedom Summer in 1964, a big civil rights initiative I'm working on now. One of the first things civil rights activists did is they set up these schools for Black Mississippians, and they introduced texts that were banned from the schools, texts on Black history, Black culture. Uh, and, and so it was very much a problem uh, in both of those cases, and I can give more examples. Uh, but it's, it's I think, accelerated. Um, and some of it is technological. I mean, we the, the great thing about social media is it gives a platform for many more voices to enter into the conversation. There's fewer guardians at the gate. Uh, in terms of having discussions about history or other kinds of issues. The bad news is there's fewer guardians at the gate, so anyone can say anything. Yeah. It's hard to distinguish. Uh, and then there are political reasons behind it. I mean, I think you can see the former president was openly uh, kind of willing to engage in disinformation um, and non-factual arguments. And I think that came out of a moment in, in politics uh, where that legitimates it. Uh, for for other actors. And so all of this is working, both new and old, uh, to create this problem. And, and finally, again, the, the history and the classroom uh, struggles that are taking place, that comes out of certain uh, partisan projects in the country, um, which I think are very destructive, the kind of notion that there should be a patriotic history, um, as if a more kind of real history is not right. patriotic, is fueling this as well. So it's a, it's a brew right. of I was, many things. I was going to ask you about that. There, well, in your introduction, you, the great Orwell quotation from 1984, who controls the past controls the future. And then, and then you put into dialogue the, the developments of the, what was it? The New York times 1619 project versus um, I think there was a, a counter history project um, by the Trump administration. Was it called the 1776 project? Yeah. As if to say, you know, whoever owns the telling of U.S. history somehow is, you know, I guess it all 
you know, when you say something like make America great again, it all depends on what that imagined past is that you're seeking to make great again. And so the past, um, it does inform the future in, in that sense. Yeah, I mean, for me, look, for me, patriotic history is not a history that is all positive and kind of eliminates huge swaths of our past that don't fit conveniently. Patriotism is to take a country seriously and to understand its flaws, its weaknesses, its contradictions, as well as its achievements. That's when you actually love country and want to understand it. Uh, so I'm a proponent of a history that that does that. And, and it doesn't give you easy narratives and usually leave students or readers kind of thinking more and trying to figure out on their own, what do you make of all this? Um, but the idea that, uh, as we're seeing right now in Florida, um, that, you know, teachers should basically purge certain texts and issues, uh, civil rights mm -hmm. from the conversation, that's not actually love of country, in my opinion. And so it's a bad framework. Ultimately, what historians should do is just do the best job they can to put together arguments, to teach it to students, and then to give the students or readers the skills they need uh, to respond to the arguments themselves. All right, so let's do a case study by way of one of the chapters, and I'll, I'll make the first one easy, your chapter on the Reagan revolution. So as the story goes, if I understand it correctly, um, the Reagan revolution was this moment of the end of a strong federal government as a social good, um, a, a, a sort of moving away from a post-Vietnam weakness in terms of foreign policy choices, and, and, and whatever the headlines that we tell ourselves regarding the, the Reagan revolution. And then you, you sort of come to say it's not so. And I was wondering if you could sort of give a more expansive view of that. And, and then ultimately the question of why it matters. Why does it matter to us um, in contemporary uh, political discourse as to what the Reagan revolution was or wasn't? Yeah, so it's a very powerful argument. Uh, this is one of the myths in the book you'll hear from liberals and conservatives, and it's not necessarily pernicious. I think it's a kind of incorrect way to think of what happens in the 80s. And the myth is, it's a term that the Reagan administration people actually promote, Reagan revolution, to create the perception of a mandate. Um, and, and what it suggests is there is a revolution that the legacies of the New Deal, the great society of liberalism in the 20th century are almost washed away in 1981 when Reagan takes office and this president pushes all of American politics to the right. We become a more conservative nation. And Reagan, like an FDR, is a kind of beloved figure throughout the country. And, and my essay says that's just not a kind of uh, correct way to think of 1980s politics. There is a conservative movement that he is part of. It has a big effect on American politics, but liberal ideas, policies like social security uh, movements, um, like the nuclear freeze movement, remain very integral and very powerful part of American politics in the 1980s right through today. Liberalism does not wither. Uh, it's equally important in this period and related to that, I argue Reagan wasn't a universally loved uh, figure. He was actually incredibly divisive. Uh, many people didn't like him at all. He created great controversy in this country. Uh, certainly liberals and, and Democrats were at odds with him every step of the way. There were many right-wing conservatives who didn't even like him because they thought he wasn't going far enough. 
And so you correct this, you get a better picture of kind of post-1980s America, but there is a message in that the trajectory of American politics is, is not left to right. Uh, it's more a civil war between these different ideas, which I think is more uh, conducive to understanding where we are today. Why after George W. Bush and uh, Trump and Reagan, you still have a Barack Obama and the domestic legislation of uh, his presidency or Biden's presidency. And, and it gives you a fuller portrait of what this country is about since that decade. Okay, so just to put a fine point on it or, or reduce it to sort of simple language, so if it's revealed that the Reagan revolution isn't all that we thought it was, therefore, or the, henceforth, what? Liberalism the, has endured uh, in a much stronger way than we remember right through okay. time. And the, uh, it's a uh, misrepresentation uh, to, to say otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, all right, an another chapter... Um, which actually, I, I you know, I, I did some of my doctoral work on uh, the the founding fathers and the early Christian voices, and um, the uh, uh, David Bell's um, chapter on American exceptionalism, by which the book begins, and uh, Winthrop City on the Hill, and um, that America was a new Israel and American Zion, and a lot of this sort of religious history that um, you know, unlike the uh, French Revolution or otherwise, which were revolutions against religious power, the American Revolution co-opted biblical imagery towards, you know, uh, an American Zion, as it were, from the Puritans onwards. And 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 so, too, um, Bell's essay seems to say, well, it's it's maybe that's not the case um, that, um, you know, that um, number one, the city on the hill wasn't necessarily a good thing. Number two, these were tropes that weren't retrieved until much later. Um, they weren't sort of part of the founding tapestry. Um, and, you know, so I'm wondering, um, you know, what, what do we do in a world where uh, this notion of American Zion, you know, is, is actually maybe more about Newt Gingrich than it is about anything woven into the fabric of our nation? Yeah, it's a it's a very powerful idea that's had a, a hold for a long time. It really um, is at its height in many ways during the Cold War, when we are at war with the Soviet Union. You hear a lot of intellectuals uh, and writers and historians using this idea. And now it's kind of taken a new incarnation. Uh, Newt Gingrich is an example of someone who talks about it all the time. And Bell argues it's not a particularly useful idea, that it, it's not... Uh, interwoven into the origins of the country, that the notion that the United States is totally distinct and free of all the other problems and issues that face comparable countries, whether it's ethnic and social tensions or economic tensions, skews um, what our nation has been about and creates a false image that somehow these problems have not been uh, part of the United States. And Bell argues in some ways all countries think of themselves as distinct. And uh, it, it's fine as kind of a myth if you want to subscribe to a myth, but it doesn't describe the reality. And Bell, who's actually a French historian, is kind of pushing to understand the concept as a concept uh, and to think more about continuities or uh, connections that different nations have faced 
um, since the founding. And it's a very powerful essay. It's funny. It's a lot of people have gravitated to that one because in many ways, that's a good opening uh, for the book before we look in particular problems. Right. Well, it really gets to the core of, you know, the founding, obviously, myth yeah. of, of our nation. And um, and it doesn't mean, I'll just add, I mean, some people read that and hear these kinds of arguments and say, well, I think the United States is great. Uh, so I, I I do think it's exceptional. And, um, you know, I, I'm not sure that David Bell wants to say the United States is good or bad. Uh, his point is to see it as distinct is, is misplaced. And um, we could understand how we have problems that were or are still uh, very much in play in a country like England or France and still see the virtues of the country, but understand um, that it doesn't mean we are a city on a hill all the time. So one more, one more chapter I just want to pivot to that I very much, I enjoyed every, you know, something about this book, Myth America, um, edited by uh, Kevin Cruz and our guest, Julian Zelzer, is just how readable and how accessible and I don't know if it's fun in the sense of going to a Jets game is fun, but it's fun. Well, actually, More a Jets game isn't. Yeah, Jets game isn't very much fun. Um, but uh, but it's a great book just to dip into. Um, the uh, the the uh, Professor Karen Cox of uh, I think uh, UNC uh, Charlotte wrote a, a great great essay on Confederate monuments, and um, and it seems like the the sort of substratum of that conversation is. The question, which is in the news all the time about Confederate monuments, is is exactly on this question of who owns history um, from, you know, some small news story to 2017 and the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, that this is this is who owns history with teeth. So tell, tell me, how, how are how's the debate about Confederate monuments about who owns history? Well, it's been front and center for a while. There's been this effort to remove uh, Confederate statues and not to have figures such as Robert E. Lee highlighted in certain communities or institutions. And often the response to this has been, well, what's going on is an effort to expunge memories of the South and to just wipe away an entire region in some ways uh, because uh, there's such disagreement with what they're about. And Cox historicizes these monuments. And she reminds us most weren't put up uh, even in the Reconstruction or post-Reconstruction period. These are monuments put up in the 20th century, often by organizations explicitly uh, trying to stop or roll back uh, civil rights initiatives and uh, arguments for racial justice. And uh, that's when these statues come into play. So her point is, removing these or keeping them really isn't about memorializing Southern history. It's about what to do with these relics of anti-civil rights, anti-racial justice uh, politics put up by organizations devoted to that cause. Um, and that's how she gets into this argument about history. Once you understand what they are, it looks different. And, and one kind of added layer, which is really great in her essay, is through the Black press, she captures voices at the time who were very aware of what these monuments were. You often hear from yeah. people today, they didn't understand, you know, we're measuring or evaluating monuments from then through criteria of modern times. But she shows that people such as Frederick Douglass and others were at the time 
from Reconstruction forward saying, why kind of is this being tolerated? This is just an effort to fight against really the legacy of Reconstruction. They're not an effort to memorialize the South. Right. It's a great essay. It's, it's just, uh, I mean, they all are. So I have, I have two final questions for you, my friend. Um, one, well, both are personal questions. So number one, uh, if there's a young person from the community listening, um, was, was there one particular book, one particular person when you, when you think, I mean, now you're a, a Princeton historian, you're on a book tour, um, you've made it. So what was the experience that made you say, huh, maybe I'll grow up to be a historian? Um, what was it? And what should young people look for um, as they're finishing high school, going to college, considering their future? Well, there was uh, there were two books that I remember reading in college that had a great impact on me. Taylor Branch's History of Civil Rights, which was the first time I really read closely a nonfiction history book and just found it the best way to talk about the nation and to understand uh, who we who we were. And another book older than that, Richard Hofstetter, The Age of Reform, one of the great historians from Columbia. It's this big, sweeping, argument-driven book, actually, back to where we started our discussion, um, where he puts together huge swaths of time from the populist era through the New Deal to make a claim about uh, what American political traditions were. So, so books uh, were really uh, what engaged me in, in what I wanted to do. And then this is for college students. I had a great mentor in college, a guy, I went to Brandeis University and there was a historian named Jim Kloppenberg who I took his course. Then junior and senior year, I worked on these lengthy research projects and he was great. He took me under his wings. He paid attention to me. If you can find a professor like that, it could be transformative. And he worked with me so closely and he let me see what it meant to write history and to be a historian that by the end of senior year, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. So mentorship and reading uh, were the paths that led me uh, to this to this job. Right. And, and last question, I can't ask this of everyone, but I can because you're a member of Park Avenue Synagogue. And I'm not asking it in a self-congratulatory way. I'm asking it in a get-to-know-the-community sort of way that you're a guy who's off on book tours, you teach at universities, you lecture widely, I see you on CNN, and that I, then I see you and your family quietly or not so quietly sitting there in synagogue. Um, and I'm wondering when you access the community, the synagogue, the Jewish community, what, is it, what does it represent for you? What are your, your hopes and, or for your, you and your family when you walk into synagogue? Yeah, I mean, it's a powerful tradition that I feel instantly when I'm in synagogue from the sounds and uh, music that we are singing to the literal structure of the synagogue. And so for me, it's very grounding to be there. It's very familiar. I grew up as the son of a rabbi uh, going to synagogue all the time. And so uh, personally to be there, it's calming uh, internally, psychologically, and it's great uh, to have family. Now the kids are um, all gone. Um, but the fact they're so engaged uh, at the university in Jewish life, uh, for me, really feels good. It's it's part of what it means to nurture um, young men and women uh, and to uh, give them something to hold on to as they enter uh, adulthood. Um, and it's a great community. It's just there's not enough community in modern life. A lot of it has 
been disassembled. It's been fractured. We live in a period where uh, people are fighting tooth and nail almost on every issue. And even the way we consume information is fractured. And so here's one solution. It's a place we are, are in unison um, and we're doing something together. And the familiarity of people around you, of the leaders such as yourself, I think is an antidote uh, to some of the challenges of modern life. So very important to me, uh, and the connection to synagogue, to Judaism, is absolutely integral uh, to who I am. Thank you. It is it is a fascinating thing, maybe for another time, that who would have thunk that a synagogue would become such a countercultural institution? Right. That, you know, how we are accessing information, that you're sitting in a cross-generational community, independent of people's politics. It's not about the instantaneous. It's about being connected, that it's, um, you know, there you go. Synagogue, the most countercultural institution in the American landscape. That'll be a discussion for another time for the moment. Um, Professor Julian Zelzer, I want to congratulate you and your co-editor, Kevin Cruz, on a fabulous new publication, Myth America. Historians take on the biggest legends and lies about our past. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. See you in shul. Hallelujah.